0: Well, this morning we are returning once again to the Gospel of Luke. We have spent the last four weeks in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And much of Malachi, we saw, was pointing towards and looking forward to Jesus and the appearance of John the Baptist. And so, as a reminder of where we've been, it's been a little bit since we've been in Luke, or if you're visiting to catch you up, we've already covered most of the first four chapters Of Luke. Jesus has already been miraculously born of the virgin. He's been baptized by John the Baptist and he's just finished resisting the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. But now Jesus emerges out of this temptation in power and to begin his public ministry. And so for these next several weeks we will look at these first instances of Jesus's ministry. And every single one of these acts shows us something significant about the mission of Jesus. But the first story, the one we will see this morning, is Jesus appearing to his hometown. But instead of a wonderful homecoming, it actually ends with a crowd trying to kill him and throw him off a cliff. And the story is not just about how these people don't appreciate Jesus. Instead, the story is trying to tell us something significant about the gospel. And it tells us who the gospel is for. And so when I started this series, you may remember, I said that I believe the message of the gospel of Luke is that Jesus is the promised king who came to preach and enact his kingdom, which is for all people through his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so today we will see how Jesus begins to enact this kingdom for all, and we will see that he is opposed rather violently. And so we will um, begin, if you would turn to Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles, we will start in verse 14 and go um, all the way to 40. And I am going to read all of it all at once before I begin um, to really dive into it. This is kind of our, our normal habit, and I do this um, because we value God's Word highly here. And the reason that we gather is not to hear me talk, but it is to hear what God has to say His Word. Um, And so if you would, if you are able, um, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable at his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers, in, Eli- lepers in, Eli- in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, and they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst he went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would be here this morning, and I ask that your Holy Spirit would move, that you would um, soften our hearts, that you would open up our ears to hear from you in your word. Would you speak to us? Would you comfort those who are hurting? Would you strengthen those who are weak? Would you convict those who need conviction? And would you help all of us to leave this place, have been changed by your word and your Holy Spirit and being more like Jesus? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, if you are taking notes in your bulletin, um, our first point is that Jesus came for the insignificant. Jesus came for the insignificant. I think this is kind of the crux of what this passage is really about. And when Jesus begins his public ministry here, he wants to make this clear. That he comes for those who have been left out and who have been left behind. And verse 14 tells us Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, so he emerges. He's just left that temptation of resisting the enemy and he's defeated them. And he comes now in power. And then the report, it goes out about him throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus, he seems to really have begun his ministry in full swing. He's going all throughout Galilee teaching. And we'll see later in verse 23, he hasn't just been teaching. He seems to have been working miracles. He seems to be healing people as well. And a result of this powerful ministry of Jesus, people are talking about him. Every time the synagogue gets out, everyone's chatting about how wonderful that Jesus, that new rabbi, is. And we need to have this context kind of the back of our minds. All of the local gossip throughout Galilee is about Jesus. That's all anyone can talk about at lunch, at home with their family or their friends, is what this Jesus guy is up to. And so when Jesus returns home, there is excitement and a buzz in the air. Now look at 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And so as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So the new prophet, he comes to his hometown town you got to believe the synagogue was packed that day, right? Even those who didn't always show up or who relax in their attendance, they probably wanted to be there then. But even the people who hadn't been there in years decided to be there that Sabbath because Jesus is here. going to see what's going to happen. But you also notice Jesus, he was an observant and perfectly obedient Jew. He attends the synagogue every single Sabbath. And the services there at the synagogue, they have kind of a a regular liturgy and an order of service. We don't know all the details of that, but we know it had lots of scripture reading. It's part of what Jesus does. So they probably began reading the Shema or in Deuteronomy 6, which begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And they would pray. They would read from different sections of scripture. Someone would be chosen. They would read from the prophets. And then that person would, after they got done reading, they would sit down and then they would explain and teach everyone what the scriptures meant. And so today, today Jesus picks the prophet, and today Jesus will teach the assembly. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolls the scroll, and he finds the place where it was written. Okay, their Bibles were not quite like ours. Isaiah had his own scroll, and they had to unroll it and to find it. And that scroll didn't have chapters and verses like ours to make it very easy to get around and find things. In order to find what you're looking for in that scroll, you really need to know the book of Isaiah. And it's one of the longest books in the Bible, yet Jesus seems to find exactly where he wants to go. Because Jesus knows his scriptures. And he reads it in verse 20, and he rolls up the scroll, and he gives it back to the attendant and sits down. And then all the eyes of the synagogue are fixed upon him. This is when everybody is paying attention. Nobody's drifted off to sleep yet. They're all listening and looking and wondering, what will this teacher say? And Jesus gives a very short sermon. Some of you might wish that I preached this short. It's only one sentence, verse 21. And He began to say to them, "Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." He says that all the promises of Isaiah that we just read are being fulfilled now before your eyes. That I am the answer to all of your questions. That the heart of what Jesus fulfills in Isaiah really here is that He comes for the overlooked. He comes for those who are insignificant. So let's go back. Let's see what did Jesus read. In verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And we know Jesus does have the Spirit of the Lord upon him because Jesus is the Spirit of God incarnate. He is God himself. And he was anointed at his baptism and filled with the Holy Spirit as the Son of God. And he comes to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But look to who he proclaims it. He says to the poor. Jesus has come for the beggar on the side of the road. The person most of us might try to avoid making eye contact with. But Jesus comes to them. He comes to all who are poor in spirit. He comes to those who are spiritually broken and who know that they are lost. He says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus comes to set free those prisoners of war. Those who have been taken captive by sin. Those who are dead in their sins and their trespasses. Who cannot escape their addictions no matter how hard they try. Jesus comes to bring liberty And freedom, and the recovering of the sight to the blind. Jesus comes to help the blind see. As we go throughout Luke, we will see many instances of Jesus healing the blind. But he will not just heal people from their physical blindness. He will help people recover their spiritual sight that they lost. And he will open the eyes of their heart that they might finally get to see God. He will set at liberty all those who are oppressed. And his freedom will come to all who are oppressed. Now, oppressed can be a bit of a buzzword these days, but biblically it means anyone who's being crushed by the powerful, which would be most of Israel, who's being oppressed by the Roman dictators. And Jesus comes to bring freedom to them, but He's also bringing freedom to those who are spiritually oppressed, those who are being crushed by demons and the power of sin. Jesus comes to bring true liberty to those who need it. And He says, I come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is referring to a very specific year. The context of these verses, which is all coming from Isaiah 61, um, over and over, the freedom and the liberty helps us see this. This can't be any other year than the year of Jubilee. We just talked about the year of Jubilee when we discussed the fourth commandment on Wednesday night. It's the year every seventh round of seven years, all of the captives get set free. Every slave is released, all bondage is capped off, all debts are forgiven. And Jesus says, this year is here because I'm here. Jesus tells them that he is here for everyone who has been overlooked or who feels insignificant. And he brings blessings beyond their wildest dreams because it's the year of Jesus and Jubilee. Verse 22, all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? I don't think this is words of doubt. They're blown away. They're overjoyed. They realize the graciousness of God. He hasn't just come for the most important and righteous people. He comes for the insignificant. And this has always been the wonder and the glory of the gospel. And we'll see this over and over through Jesus' ministry. He'll let women be his disciples, something no other rabbi would do. He will hold little babies even when his disciples want him to hobnob with people who are a little more significant or can at least understand what he's saying. Jesus will eat and drink with prostitutes and tax collectors. He will touch the leper and the unclean. Everyone who feels far away and overlooked will be sought out by Jesus because he came for anyone who feels or that the world deems insignificant. In this focus of Christianity, it's always bewildered the world. The philosophers of Rome never understood it. They didn't know why Christians would care about these overlooked people. One such philosopher during the third century, his name was um, Celsus, and he said that Christians as he was insulting them, said, Christians want to make converts of the foolish, low individuals, persons devoid of perception, and slaves, and women, and children, to which we reply, amen. Because all are welcome at the table of Jesus. And this is what Jesus wanted to make clear at the beginning of his ministry, that he came for those nobody wanted. He came for those who were in need. He came for you, and he came for me. He came for all of us. Now, our world is obsessed with significance, right? We honor and we highlight the impressive and the successful things of the world. And we long for honest to have our lives filled with significance and with achievements. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't feel very significant. You look at your life and there isn't really anything that would impress a crowd. I want you to, to hear this passage and read it. Hear this sermon from Jesus. Know that Jesus came for you. He didn't come for the most important people in Israel. He came for the poor, the blind, the oppressed, and the captive. And he came for the insignificant. And take heart because the year of God's favor is for the insignificant. So our first point, Jesus came for the insignificant. The people are excited and they're amazed, but there's a problem. Point number two, if you're taking notes, is that the significant get no special access to Jesus. The significant do not get special access to Jesus. There's a flip side to Jesus' mission to the significant, or the insignificant. Those who have it all together, who are rich, those who are powerful and influential, those who are well and don't need a doctor, those who have accomplished great things, those who have the crowds begging to get into their circles, those who are celebrities, they don't get any special access to Jesus at all. And when Jesus makes this clear, it infuriates them. This is why people go from speaking well of him in verse 22 to trying to kill him in verse 29. And Jesus knows this. So this is why right away he wants to make it very clear. Just because they are his hometown, they are not getting any special treatment from him or in the kingdom of God. They do not get special access to Jesus. Now in the worldly kingdoms, the rich get richer. Right? It's the good old boys club. It's about who you know and if you're known. But the kingdom of God... The kingdom of Jesus is utterly unlike the kingdoms of this world. God, Jesus' kingdom doesn't give VIP status to the rich. The celebrities and the powerful don't get special one-on-one time with God, while those who are not that important get whisked off the line to go somewhere else. Jesus doesn't heal those who have enough money. He heals often the nobodies and the forgotten. Verse 23, he tells them, You know, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So you see, Jesus reads their minds. He knows exactly what they're going to say. In the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What this means is he's saying, hey, right, a doctor should use their own skills on their own body. If they know how to make other people well and they're not well, they should know how to make themselves well. What they're saying is, Jesus, do for us what we know you've been doing for other people. They want the hometown to get some of these blessings. Now, the theologian, Justo gonzalez he gave a great illustration that helped um, make this really clear for me what's happening. So I wanted to adapt it a little bit. He said, this is really like a hometown athlete who finally makes it big. Okay, so picture somebody who grows up in Norman. They finish high school and they're a top-rated football recruit. So they decide to go play for the Sooners. They win a championship, they get a Heisman, and they get drafted number one in the NFL. They go have a really successful couple of years, and so now their rookie contract's up, and they get a, the biggest contract ever, millions upon millions of dollars. And to top it off, you know, they're a devoted Christian. They come from a good family. They've been talking about how much they want to donate to charities and to give back to the community. So they show up back in Norman, and they're going to have a massive press conference, and everyone wants to be there to hear what they're going to do, all right? So the kids are out of school to go. The news stations all show up, and everyone wants to know, what is he going to say? What are they going to do? They know the announcement's going to be the start of this charitable foundation. They're going to announce it right there at their hometown. The day comes, everyone's there. They get up on stage, and they start to announce all the money they're going to give away. They're going to give tens of millions of dollars away to universities. And the crowd's cheering. Everyone's excited until they say, and the school I'm donating to is the University of Texas in Austin. (laughs) And then they say, and you know, and Norman is not going to get a single dime of my money, but I'm going to give some other millions to a school down in Stillwater. Okay, how well do you think that's going to go over? (laughs) Okay, I would like that, but I know many of you would not. Okay, how quickly is that crowd going to turn from joy and excitement to booze and anger? This is basically what Jesus does. He shows up at his hometown having blessed and healed and taught, and he tells him, you guys aren't getting any special treatment at all. You don't have any special access to me. It's radical, it's insulting, and it is spiritually significant. This is Jesus making it clear. He is not like the other rabbis. He's not like any other celebrity or any other religious teacher. When people know someone famous, right, they think, oh, well, I know them. This is going to me special access to them. They might think, I can come in and I can get something from this person now. So they tell you, hey, if you ever win the lottery, don't tell anyone because everyone from your hometown is going to show up with their needs and want access to you. Well, Nazareth feels like they have won the lottery, Okay, Jesus, you needs to stop this traveling ministry thing and set up shop here in Nazareth. This is really going to help the economy of our town. This is going to help our businesses. And maybe the synagogue is going to start getting better attendance if Jesus is here every week. I'm willing to bet people in Nazareth had all sorts of plans for Jesus. Or at the very least, they wanted to show and to be entertained by him. But Jesus tells them no. And then he gives them two biblical stories. He reminds them of this fact. The first story he tells them is the story of Elijah and a widow. Verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. So for three years and six days, there's no rain. In that day and age, that would be devastating. They're not able to to irrigate and take care of the land as well as we are now. That's three years of no harvests they were able to harvest, I doubt they got much. Three years of the farmers losing everything. Three years of ranchers slowly losing their cattle because they couldn't water them or they kept having to eat them. Three years of shepherds slowly eating all of their sheep. Thousands of people would have starved to death. Those who were poor would have been hit the hardest because they wouldn't have savings. Widows would have been the most vulnerable. They have no income. They have no job. They have no family to support them. They're all alone. And Jesus says there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah. There's tens of thousands of widows. There were probably new widows every day. But Elijah didn't help all of them. There's only one that God sends Elijah to. Verse 26, and Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. You may wonder, where is Sidon located in Israel? Well, the answer is it's not in Israel. It's a Canaanite city. Sidon was actually um, Canaan's firstborn son. And the Canaanites are one of Israel's oldest enemies. So as tens of thousands of Israelites are dying, God sends the prophet Elijah over to Sidon. You can read about the story in 1 Kings 17. God actually commands Elijah to go there. And God finds the widow as she's about to make a last meal for her and her son, and then they're going to die. But God works a miracle and their flour and their oil, it doesn't run out until the famine is over. And even when the woman's son dies from a sickness later, Elijah goes back and brings him back to life. And this Canaanite woman expresses her faith in the God of Israel who has blessed her. And then Jesus reminds them of another story. This time from the prophet Elisha. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them were cleansed. None of them were healed, but only Naaman, the Syrian can read about this story in 2 Kings chapter 5. Right, leprosy, it's an infectious disease. There's lepers all throughout Israel. And as they're lepers, they don't get to worship in the temple. They can't participate in Israel's life. And yet, Elisha only heals one of them. He heals a Syrian. He doesn't heal an Israelite. And in the story, you'll see that the king of Israel actually doesn't have any faith in God to heal, while the Syrian Naaman does. Elisha tells Naaman to wash in the dirty Jordan River, and even though Naaman struggles with his doubt, he does. And because of his faith and his obedience, God heals him. So what do these stories have in common? Well, I mean, we have two incredible prophets, two miracles, but they are both worked for Gentiles, not Israel. They're both worked for insignificant and overlooked people in the Jews' eyes. And even though they're given strange requests... These Gentiles obey and have faith, while the Israelites are ignored and don't. Jesus tells them these stories is the reason why they will see no miracles. It's not Jesus forgetting about where he came from. It's not Jesus being ungrateful. There is deep spiritual significance to what Jesus does. He is trying to teach Nazareth and Israel and us today, there are no VIPs in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not the old boys club. There's no nepotism here. You can't get inside based on who you know or who you, your parents were. There's no special access to Jesus. And there's no special access to Jesus because everyone can come to him. But the only way to get to Jesus is by faith. Faith alone is the only door. It's the only ticket into the kingdom of God. Right, I'm actually I'm a second-generation preacher. Okay, three out of four of my grandparents are very faithful believers. I can trace some of my family back to the Anabaptists, right, in the 16th century. Okay, none of that gives me any extra credit with Jesus whatsoever. I still, as an individual, had to decide to put my faith in Jesus. I couldn't just pull out my family tree and say, no, I think I deserve to come in. Because the only way into the kingdom of God is faith. You can't buy your way into the kingdom with your heritage, You can't buy your way into the kingdom with money and influence. You can't buy your way into the kingdom with works. Even if you were born today as a Christian family in Nazareth, even if you grew up and you got to play in Jerusalem and walk around where Jesus walked, it wouldn't give you any special access to Jesus. You still need to have faith. This is what Nazareth needed to understand. The kingdom is not for the well-connected. It is for the poor in spirit. It is for the Gentiles and the insignificant, and it is for anyone who comes, but you've got to come by faith and faith alone. Point number three, if you're taking notes, is we see that Jesus' coming is opposed. Jesus' coming is opposed. Right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there is opposition. It doesn't just happen in Jerusalem before Calvary. It happens now. Day one. Okay, this is the first Sunday of Lent, right? It's the time of the Christian calendar. We start to begin to prepare ourselves for Easter. It's not about deciding if you will or won't fast. It's about preparing your heart and meditating on the life and the death of Jesus. Sometimes I often during this time hear people wonder, well, how could the crowd celebrate Jesus, you know, early in the week at the triumphant entry, and then they kill him on Friday? How could that happen? Well, here you get a story of they celebrate him after the sermon, and ten minutes later they decide to kill him. Okay, it's not new. It happens right at the beginning of his ministry. People are walking out of the synagogue and saying, Oh, great sermon, Rabbi, great sermon. And then after it, a few hours later, maybe at most, they're killing him. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue are filled with wrath. When they realize Jesus isn't going to perform for me, when they realize we don't get any special blessings for being in his hometown, they are incredibly angry. 29, and they rose up and they drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of the hill which their town was built so they could throw him down from the cliff. Jesus isn't just opposed. He is often violently resisted. And they don't try to throw him off this cliff because they think he's a heretic. No, his words have made them so angry. He is not the kind of Messiah that they expected. They thought this Messiah was going to give them some special blessings, and he didn't. And one of the reasons that this happens as well is to show us that the opposition that Jesus is going to face. It's not new. It's not a later invention. Right away at the beginning, people oppose Jesus. There are scholars who will try to tell you and talk about Jesus as if he was just a really nice moral teacher. He was just very kind to everyone and told us to love one another. Or maybe they'll tell you, well, he's just opposed because later he messed with the Romans and he, you know, they, he angered them. Or Jesus was just pushing for justice and a new kingdom and that's what angered people. But what we see here is like Jesus was and he always has been opposed. From his very first sermon, people did not want to hear what Jesus had to say. Because the message of the kingdom, it is offensive. It's not new. It's not because our world has gotten so evil today. Wherever the gospel is truly preached, there is opposition. It will make people angry and it may even tear communities apart. And this story comes now at the beginning. The opposition and deaths... Threats come at the beginning because Jesus is going to die in the story. It is foreshadowing. It's setting it up so we know, hey, before this ends, Jesus will die. He will be grabbed by the crowd. But they're not going to throw him off a cliff to a quick death. It's going to be much, much longer. He's going to be tortured. They'll flog his back beyond recognition. They're going to nail him to a tree. He will slowly suffocate as his lungs fill up with blood. But all of this is part of Jesus' plan. I love verse 30. Look at what happens here. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. Try to picture that moment if you can. Okay, how did that happen? Okay, the crowd grabs Jesus. They throw him outside. The people are screaming with rage. It's quickly, it's basically a lynch mob and someone yells, throw him off the cliff. So they all start marching that way. And maybe they're carrying them on top. And as they get there, they start, you know, all right, chanting. Toss them off. Toss them off. And then they look around and realize, wait, where is he? Who had him? I I thought you had him. I, I thought you had him. And nobody can find Jesus. And so that's kind of embarrassing. Then they kind of got to calm down and then just, you know, go throughout the rest of their Sabbath day. Because somehow, miraculously, Jesus just passes through their midst. He just slips through their fingers. And he wades through the crowd, and he watches as it marches off towards the cliff without him. This morning um, at breakfast, I told this story to my four-year-old son, and he laughed. And he said, is this a silly story, Daddy? <laughs> uh-huh. And it really is, in, in one sense. Because all of that anger, and that power, and that might, and that opposition, and Jesus just disappears. He performs a magic trick. Now, why does it mention this? It's not just a weird thing that happens. It's not just a weird anecdote. It's not just trying to be funny, though it is. There's theological significance to what happened here. Jesus is opposed, and they try to kill him, but Jesus passes through their midst unharmed because Jesus is in control. He cannot be killed until it's time. He will not let himself die until it is time. The world can scream, and it can rant all at once. It can scheme, it can plot, but Jesus holds it all in his power. And all of the strength of the mob has no power over Jesus unless he lets it. As Jesus passes through the midst of any opposition he wants, at the cross they murdered Jesus. Spiritual leaders, they celebrated because they thought that they won. They believed it was finally over. We got rid of him. Satan thought that he had won. Death itself thought, yes, I've trapped the Son of God. But Jesus was just passing through. And Jesus passed through the fingers of Rome, the Jews, Satan, and death itself as he emerged in resurrection victory. It's a reminder to us of the beauty of the gospel that people can oppose Jesus all they want. People can oppose God's word. People can oppose the bride of Christ, the church. And sometimes the enemy may even seem like it wins. Churches may close their doors. Truth and righteousness may seem to have faded, but Jesus passes through all of their midst. And because of Jesus, all of us who place our hope and our faith in Him, who have placed all all that we are in our resurrected Savior, we too will get to pass through their midst. That we will pass through any opposition that this world can throw our way, and one day we will pass through the fingers of death itself when Jesus returns to bring resurrection. We've been this morning, a reminder, we've seen at first that Jesus came for the insignificant. We've seen that the significant don't get any special access to Jesus, and we've seen that Jesus' coming is opposed, but he passes right on through. People can oppose Jesus, and they can oppose his people all that they want, but our Savior wins. So take heart, beloved. Um, No matter what you face in this life, no matter how insignificant you feel, Jesus came for you. And no matter how strong the opposition to the kingdom of God seems, Jesus will help all of us pass through any suffering or any opposition that this world can bring. Let's pray. Lord, I, I ask that you would be with us this morning. Lord, there is times that the, the chance of the crowd And the size of it can shake our faith. That it feels so overwhelming. That we see the way that the world chants and hates you. And it discourages us. We can look at the opposition that the churches all over the globe face. And it makes us wonder where you are. just wonder what your plan was. Jesus, help remind us that you are always in control. And that no matter how strong the opposition looks, it is in your hand. And you pass through its fingers, and because of our faith in you, and because of you and what you do, we too will pass through even death itself. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us. Remind us of the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of who you are. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. If you're able, why don't you stand one more time um, as we worship our Savior in song. let be to the Lord of Lords. Uh, Hear this benediction from Numbers 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Go in peace.